0: All right, if you have your Bibles, you may turn with me, if you would, in them this evening, to Mark chapter 2. Looking at verse 23 in Mark 2 and going then through a few verses in chapter 3, Lord of the Sabbath. We continue in Mark today, finishing our time in chapter 2, going into Mark 3, and we do so with the familiar tone that we have come to expect from the Gospel of Mark, which is somewhat speedy and a focus on authority. We also come at the end of chapter 2 to what we could consider to be the fourth great controversy surrounding Christ's authority as it has been presented. We might even say that this is the theme of chapter 2, chapter 1 being an introduction to Christ's authority, chapter 2 being an introduction to the controversies around Christ's authority, and then chapter 3 we might theme to be the response of the authorities of the land to Christ's authority as we continue a little bit into that this week and then, of course, in the weeks that are to come. So recall at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, Jesus saw the faith of the man with palsy. Having been lowered through the roof to reach him, Jesus immediately responds to this faith with the statement, Thy sins be Forgiven thee. And this response startled, then angered the scribes and the Pharisees because only God can forgive sins. And while this should have been a clue to them about the nature of Jesus Christ's claim to authority and to the, the, the title of Son of God, instead it was simply a deep offense to them. It was a, a response of unbelief and unwillingness to see what was right before their eyes. Then Jesus is found eating at the table of publicans and sinners. The table of Levi. The scribes and the Pharisees are deeply frustrated by this once again. To which Jesus responds that he had not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And in one sense, the Pharisees would thus think that Jesus wasn't there for them. Except that we know Jesus was there for them because his focus in every place he went was to go into the synagogues and preach the kingdom first and foremost. To this end then, Jesus was effectively telling them that they too were sinners in need of repentance, though they did not see it. We then come to the third controversy, which, is a, which was a controversy surrounding fasting. Jesus tells the scribes and the Pharisees that his disciples did not need to conform to the tradition of fasting at that time, specifically because there was no need to fast while the bridegroom was there with the children of the bride. The purpose of fasting was not consistent with the present context and condition within which Jesus and the disciples found themselves but that when it was appropriate to fast they would indeed fast at that time and that leads us today to a fourth controversy in the narrative of chapter of mark chapter 2 Now what we have not done to this point is explore how it has been that the scribes and the Pharisees have responded, and again, that's not the focus of Mark chapter 2, it is the focus of chapter 3, and in that we are kind of going around the horn of chapter 2 into chapter 3, we're going to see a little bit of that response tonight as well, and there's actually quite a bit to cover, um, so let's go ahead and just get to it. We... Pick up in verse 23 of Mark chapter 2, and the Bible says this, And it came to pass that when he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn, and the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they... On the Sabbath day, that which is not lawful. So the narrative has Jesus and his disciples walking through cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples, as they are walking, are plucking ears of corn. And the Pharisees look at this and they ask a question, which is, why do they on the Sabbath that which is not lawful? Now it is worth noting that the problem that the Pharisees were focusing in upon was not that they were plucking the corn, this was not unlawful. Much to the contrary, as long as they were plucking it by hand, it was provided for in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, that the people of Israel could pluck the corn of their neighbor, but what they were explicitly forbidden to do was to take a sickle to one's neighbor's corn. The idea here is that this was a built-in method of charity, a charity mechanism by which people who were in need could go to a field, a harvest field, and could harvest immediately that which they needed to eat in that moment, but they could not then bring with them equipment by which to take that which was their neighbor's for their own uh, further welfare or for selling to others or whatever it might be, their own material gain. So the problem was not that they were plucking corn. The problem was when they were plucking corn, that they were plucking corn on the Sabbath day. And by this point in Israel's history, the Sabbath day had become one of their primary religious institutions. The Sabbath was observed on the seventh day of the week, which in Jewish reckoning would have been from sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. And the intent was uh, to bake into culture this day of rest after the manner of God's day of rest on the seventh day of creation. Now, I say at this point in time, because it was not always so that the Jews actually cared about their Sabbaths or anything of the sort. Uh, This was actually not a distinctive uh, directly of, um, of, of broad Jewish culture until after the time of renewal in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, 167-165 BC. It had been a couple hundred years at this point that the Jews had been into this this, uh, position, mental position of nationalistic fervor after a time where all of the Jewish traditions were effectively dying out And then before that, of course, we see in our Old Testaments that while the Jewish traditions were always around and the the scriptures were always there somewhere, um, culture never did a really great job at obeying them in in Israel. However, after this nationalistic fervor, after Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian king, attempted to uh, forcibly convert the Jews to Hellenism or or, or Greek culture— Israel what became extremely orthodox in their interpretation of the law of God of law of Moses. And so they established these laws and then they built on top of those laws traditions to make sure that they would properly align themselves with these laws. One of those laws was the law of the Sabbath taken primarily from Exodus chapter 31 through 38 in which by Jewish tradition They interpret 39 categories of forbidden acts on the Sabbath day. Sewing, plowing, reaping, binding, sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying, untying, sewing two stitches, tearing, trapping, slaughtering, flaying, salting, curing, hide, scrapping, hide, cutting, hide, writing two letters, erasing two letters, Building, tearing a building down, extinguishing a fire, kindling a fire, hitting with a hammer, taking an object from a private domain to a public domain, or transporting an object in the public domain. These were all things that were identified by, Exodus, uh, by, by, by the Jewish traditions from Exodus chapters 31 to 38 as unlawful on the Sabbath day. Now, of course, these things have been and were at that time even still generally subject to interpretation, an interpretation which perhaps has never been fully consistent in the Jewish world as um, there's a standard, but uh, always those that are, are less than enthusiastic about certain aspects of said interpretation. There was, however, a general consensus at this time among the authorities and powers in this regard so that as Jesus passed through the, pl- the, 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 the fields on this day and he and his disciples plucked that corn, they would, have been in, they would have been in violation of the interpretive consensus of the religious leaders of the day. By making a way through the cornfield, they would have been laboring and moving through the public domain. And then by separating the corn from his husk, they would have been winnowing on that day. And notice how I say this. The identity of those 39 violations and the enforcement of their direct meaning are not necessarily in the Bible directly. These are interpretive in nature and consensus-driven. And this is going to become apparent in the actual controversy that then unfolds. Now, Jesus gives a direct response to their concerns in verses 24 and 20, uh, excuse me, 25 and 26. And then we'll see a couple of other points in 27 and 28 before we uh, come more specifically to a- another instance at hand. So we read this. Verses 25 and 26. And he, that would be Jesus, said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need and was in hunger, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him? Now, the first thing Jesus does here is to point to biblical history to show that not every action can fall nicely within the scope of their legal theories surrounding the law. And he specifically references the account of David's initial flight away from Saul in First Samuel 21. There we read this in verses 3 through 6. Now, therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what there is present. And that would be David speaking to Abiathar. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women." And David answered the priest and said unto him of a a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out and the vessels of the young men are holy and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread for there was no bread, but the show bread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. So David is fleeing from Saul here. And he goes to, uh, well, Abiathar. We actually see him speaking directly to Ahimelech at this time, the priest. And David lies and tells the priest that he is on a hasty errand from the king and he asks for armaments and food for his men. He is given thus the sword of Goliath, which Ahimelech figured was probably more or less his anyway, since he was the one that took it to cut off Goliath's head. But when it came to the bread, there was no common bread in the tabernacle. There was no food to give to David except for... The showbread, which Ahimelech called hallowed bread, because it was set aside for the worship of God and so it had been consecrated for that purpose. Now, the text tells us that it was being removed at that time in the day specifically so that they could replace it with new bread. And so there was the transference of bread whereby then the priests were commanded to eat the old showbread before the Lord. Ahimelech told David, however, that as long as they were more or less ceremonially unclean, excuse me, ceremonially clean, that he would consent to allow them to take the bread in this unique and needful circumstance. That this was not a normal circumstance, it was a unique circumstance and a needful circumstance. And that in that, this unique and needful circumstance, under a certain set of hallowed prescriptions, that they could eat that bread. Now, this was not the letter of the law here. Which according to Leviticus 24 verse 9 commanded that the Levites eat the hallowed bread as a most holy offering made unto the Lord. And yet Ahimelech consented that David and his men as long as they were operating within the bounds of the laws of sanctification were free to take and eat the loaves of showbread set aside for those priests. Now the question that we ask here is why does Jesus use that example? What is the purpose of drawing out this historical account? David did something in 1 Samuel 21 which was contrary to the law. The showbread was set apart for the priest and for his family and was designed to be eaten by them very clearly without controversy in Leviticus. But Ahimelech saw that in a moment of need, the letter of the law as it related to the ritual use of the showbread would be subject to other greater laws, namely the laws of necessity and of wellness of a brother. Ahimelech and his family were not needy, they were not hungry, nor were they in a hurry on a matter. David and his men were, by David's representation at least, (laughs) these things. A great need. Rested upon David by his representation in this moment. And Ahimelech saw the law of necessity as being of greater authority than the law which governed the ceremonial law that which governed the typical use of the showbread. A singular instance, a singular exception to that which was established in the law in deference to a greater law, which was the law of necessity. Now in doing so, neither David nor Ahimelech were expressing any contempt... For God, for the law that governed the showbread. Now we could argue David's part, that the account was founded upon a lie. And so we could argue the contempt as it related to the lie that would end up actually costing many of these priests their lives. We could argue that. But as far as this interaction and the way Jesus is using this interaction, there is no contempt here shown for the Lord, for his law, for his ceremonies, for his purposes, for his holiness. There is only the law of necessity overriding the law of ceremony. So that in Jesus' reference of David's plight here, we see the first reason why it was that the Pharisees needed not be troubled by Jesus' actions. Because they were allowing the law of necessity by which Jesus and his disciples needed to eat to, to be reckoned as a greater law than their interpretation of the various aspects of Sabbath teaching. And in yielding the laws of the Sabbath in this way to the law of necessity, Jesus was by no means intending in any way, shape, or form to pour contempt upon the laws of the Sabbath itself, but only regarding that there are times in life when a law is subject to a greater law, where the law of ceremony is subject to the law of necessity. And it is not contempt for the lesser law to give way to the claims of a higher law. And we'll see this idea demonstrated very clearly as we make our way into Mark 3. Perhaps you're saying, Pastor, how did you get all of that? How do you know that that, that your interpretation is sound? Where is your confidence that that's actually what Jesus is trying to say here? And I don't believe that it's directly from this instance itself, but rather from then, the instance as it continues in Mark chapter 3. However, before we get there, Jesus then uses this opportunity to build upon this argument two other interrelated truths and claims regarding the relationship of Jesus to the Sabbath itself. And we read these in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. The Bible says, And he said unto them, that would be Jesus to these Pharisees, The Sabbath was not made for man. Excuse me. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So Jesus makes a very important and somewhat profound statement here. The Sabbath exists for men. Man does not exist for the Sabbath. Jesus goes all the way to the functional purpose of the Sabbath as the Lord established it and chooses then to interpret the Sabbath's expectations as well as the Sabbath's prohibitions, not as an end in and of themselves, but as a means by which to accomplish the end for which the Sabbath was actually established. In other words, the the Sabbath was established unto the end that a man might rest. The Sabbath was established to serve man. The Sabbath was not established to bind man into serving its nuances, where those nuances were not consistent with what the Sabbath was intended to be. And Jesus reminds his listeners that the end of the Sabbath, its effective purpose was not so that man could be constrained in service to the expectations of a day of a week, but rather that a man would be served through being compelled to rest one day of the week. The Sabbath was established by God not to be a yoke upon the necks of those who would seek to follow it, but to be a servant, an asset, a help, a value to its adherents, to cause men to rest from their labor, to compel men to slow down and to contemplate the God whom they could not see rather than only the circumstances of the existence which they saw all around them every day to remember where it was that blessing came from, where it was that wellness came from, where it was that provision came from, so that as they rested on this day, they rested not just from their labors, but they rested in the Lord, expressing on that day a manner of trust that would carry them through the other six days where they did their due diligence to do as unto the Lord, only to then at the end say, Lord, if I give up one day of my labors to you, you will take care of me well. Not to mention the other Sabbaths, uh, seven year Sabbaths and 50th year Jubilee. But at which point the Sabbath then would become a burden, causing one to be unable to live properly. At this point, it is no longer accomplishing its intended purpose. It has become a burden rather than a rest, it has become a sorrow rather than a joy. So that is, Jesus and his disciples chose what to do on that day, namely to pluck and eat this corn. They assessed that to do otherwise would to cause the Sabbath to be a burden rather than a blessing, which would violate the intent of the Sabbath in the name of the letter of the Sabbath. And by this, again, they did not in any way express contempt for the Sabbath itself. They were not attempting here to redefine the Sabbath and so to define away the Sabbath as we are humans are so capable of doing with laws and rules, Right? We're so very capable of taking the letter of the law and redefining it and reassessing it in order to completely destroy the spirit of the law in deference to the letter of the law. We're very good at that as humans. But they did not show contempt to the Sabbath on this day, but only rather reflected upon a scenario where keeping the letter of the Sabbath would fall short of obeying the spirit of the Sabbath, and so chose the latter over the former. But that isn't all that Jesus said either. He then said in connection to this idea, therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, take note of the fact that in the scope of the book, who introduced our Savior, the very beginning of the book, right? If I turn back to Mark chapter 1, I read, In the begin the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the book is introduced, our Savior is introduced as the Son of God and whose focus rests upon the authority of Jesus Christ by virtue of Him being the Son of God, Jesus here does not call Himself the Son of God. He actually calls Himself here the Son of Man. He says, therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, the title Son of Man is one that is used throughout the Scriptures to speak of humanity. It is given as a sort of title for the prophet Ezekiel uniquely. If you were to go into the Old Testament, you would not find it used much, except in Ezekiel where it's used... Everywhere. But spoken of in any context, generally speaking, it is simply referencing those who come from the line of Adam. They are the sons of men. But of course, the funny thing about that is that Jesus does not come from the line of Adam. He is not born of a human father, he's born of a human mother, but he was conceived of the Holy Ghost. It is interesting here then that he is called the Son of Man. To this end in the New Testament, we see Jesus reference himself as the Son of Man as being a, a statement of authority. And if we have any doubt about that, we simply go back to a few verses to Mark chapter 2, verse 10, where Jesus said, the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. So that we find Jesus claiming both a connection to his humanity and a connection to his authority, even in this title, not as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man. Jesus seems to be claiming in the authority which all men have the right to claim in a sense. The authority over the nature of the Sabbath is an institution designed for the good of man. And so it's subject to the authority of man. That if the Sabbath was truly made for men, then men hold the a measure of rights over the nature of the Sabbath day. And because man is also under authority, he has no right to explain away the Sabbath's purpose or to pour contempt upon its intent. But as it was made and operated under a man's authority, men have every right to subjugate it to the needs of him and his disciples. But this is certainly not all that Jesus is saying here. Jesus is also claiming here a unique connection to the Sabbath, that the Son of Man, meaning himself specifically, not just the sons of men, but the Son of Man is Lord Also, of the Sabbath. That not only was the Sabbath made for men, and so that in that sense, every man has some measure of flexibility or some measure of authority as it relates to the nature of what their Sabbath looks like. But then he says, and on top of this, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. That he has the right to do as he would with it, for indeed it is his day. Yes, mankind has the right to recognize the necessity above the law of the Sabbath, in that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. But the Sabbath, which was made for man, is also established not just for man, but it's established unto God. The Sabbath is a day to honor the Lord who rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath is a day to regard the design and authority of God over human priorities. So that ultimately it is the Lord of the Sabbath to whom man is accountable as he relates himself to the Sabbath's demands. That if I were to, uh, well, not me, if they were to miss or reinterpret the Sabbath in a manner that was not consistent with uh, uh, that which was right before God, that they would answer to the Lord of the Sabbath for, the manner, for, for pouring contempt upon that, that, that Sabbath day. And Jesus says here that in the same way that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and he has every right to express it as he sees fit. For it is for him as a man, but it is also unto him as the Son of Man. And as this is the case, there's no scenario where he is outside of his rights on how he observes it. And this leads us to the exercising of this principle. We have this principle laid out in chapter 2 with something fairly innocuous which is the plucking of corn in order that we can understand where Jesus coming is coming from in chapter 3 when he does something a little bit more dramatic. So we read beginning in verse 1. And he that would be Jesus entered again into the synagogue. And there was a man and there was a man there, excuse me, which had a withered hand. And they watched him. "'whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day "'that they might accuse him. "'And he saith unto the man which hath the withered hand, "'Stand forth.' "'And he said unto him, "'Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days "'or to do evil, to save life, or to kill?' "'But they held their peace. "'And when he had looked round about them, "'on them with anger, "'being grieved for the hardness of their hearts,' He saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth, and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. So Jesus uh, was in the fields picking corn when the previous controversy came up. And now the Bible says he enters into the synagogue. Uh, The definite article here, the synagogue, not just a synagogue, uh, probably means that he's back in Capernaum. Capernaum was the base of operations when he was up in Galilee. That's the place where he lived when he was up in Galilee uh, after he had left Nazareth and he had left his home. And in that it's the synagogue. uh, We say, which synagogue is the synagogue? Well, very likely the synagogue here is Capernaum. Uh, maybe it is, maybe it's just what it is, I don't know, but that's my thought. Uh, Either way, there is in this synagogue, on the same Sabbath, we would presume a man with a withered hand. And here Jesus sees the opportunity to demonstrate all that he has just expressed to these Pharisees. So there's Jesus. And there's the man with the withered hand. And they, the Bible says, presuming this they to be the Pharisees, We're here watching. Jesus there, man with withered hand here. They're here. They're watching. They want to see what's about to happen. Would he heal this man on the Sabbath day? See, because in order to heal a withered hand on the Sabbath day, Jesus must create something. He must work. He must labor. He must create. He must create whatever. Sinews, muscles, bones. We don't know. Whatever it was, he had to create something. And so this would have been unlawful by the legality of the Sabbath day, by those 39 ordinances. Now let's pause and consider the spiritual blindness of the moment. Jesus is standing next to a man with a withered hand. Even the humanitarian blindness of the moment. Goodness, everyone presumes upon what Jesus is about to do here. He's been going around all Galilee healing everybody. He comes into the uh, the synagogue on the Sabbath day and there's this guy here who has a withered hand. Everyone says, Jesus is here. Man with withered hand is here. Jesus heals. Man with withered hand needs healing. This 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 is what's going to happen here. It's a match made in the kingdom of heaven, right? But where's the mind of the Pharisee? They're wondering whether or not Jesus would dare heal this man, heal his sinews, heal his bones, heal his muscles, heal his ligaments, whatever it was, when the law explicitly prohibits creation on the Sabbath day. Would he dare do that? Throughout the history of humanity, one could count the times that a man had the power to do the things Jesus was doing. On one hand... And these Pharisees are hung up on the day of the week that this miraculous divine power would be exercised. So Jesus looks at the man and he tells him to stand forth. And maybe you could imagine that things just got a little more tense. Now the man's standing and Jesus is there. There's suspense. And Jesus asks a question to them. They're watching Jesus. They're looking at the man with the withered hand. The man's now standing. Jesus is there standing. He's standing. What's going to happen? Jesus looks at them and he says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? And this is the same principle that Jesus addressed in the example of David, is it not? Was David allowed in a moment of need to subordinate the law of the showbread below the need for sustenance? Was Jesus allowed to subordinate the law of the Sabbath below the urgent need for a man to be healed? No one answered. The Bible says they held their peace. What answer was there to give, right? If they say no... Then the Pharisees are heartless men who would rather see a man continue through his days with a debilitating deformity in his hand rather than breach this principle of the Sabbath. And that's not a good look. And we know as we walk through the scriptures, the Pharisees kind of cared about that. But if they say yes, then they were asserting, assenting to Jesus's breach of the Sabbath. And so they were compromising their own legal purity. So they held their peace, and this really did not make Jesus happy. The Bible says he looked around about them with anger, and anger rooted in his grief over the hardness of their hearts to sound doctrine. Anger is not, in every case, a bad, sinful thing. Anger has a righteous outlet. If it were not so, then the Lord could not get angry, for indeed the Lord does not sin. But in that we see that the Lord is angry, then we know that there is a route by which anger can be manifested in a way that is not sinful. And indeed, here, Jesus has every right to this anger over the hardness and unbelief of their hearts. So he looked around them, And he tells the man to stretch forth his hand. The man obeys. And as the man stretches forth his hand, however that works, it is restored to wholeness. Now, no one resisted Jesus in this thing. But Jesus was right to be grieved with the hardness of their hearts because in verse 6 we find immediately that the Pharisees went forth and consulted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. And this becomes a truly important point in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. The Herodians are mentioned three times in the New Testament. Here in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, describing the Pharisees' reaction to Jesus' healing on the Sabbath day. And then they're mentioned in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, and in Mark chapter 12, verse 13, excuse me. Both of those, (coughs) excuse me, describe a conspiracy between the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch Jesus in a no-win situation asking whether or not to pay tribute to Rome. The Herodians are there on that day as well, of course, because the Herodians, we'll talk about them a little bit more in a moment, the Herodians were quite loyal to Rome and the Pharisees were not. And so that was a no-win situation, right? Where Jesus, where, where, where because the Pharisees and the Herodians were there, someone was going to leave upset with his answer except no one did because Jesus is wisdom. But the idea of the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together is actually a very startling thing. If we were reading through Mark and you were someone of the day and you were reading about what had transpired and you did not know the story of Jesus and you're reading this and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Pharisees and the Herodians just came together to conspire for something. You would be very confused. Now, the Herodians were not a religious sect. They were a political movement. They were men who supported the rule of Herod over the nation of Israel. Now there's quite a bit of backstory and quite a bit of history there. Those of you that have gone through the intertestamental class with, uh, at the church here or have watched it online are familiar with a lot of that backstory and that history. But the family line of Herod was an Edomite line that had come to power during the tumultuous years of Rome's early occupation of the land of Israel. The Edomians had great reason to hate the Jews, going all the way back to their subjugation under a high priest named John Hyrcanus in 125 B.C. He was brutal with them as he subjugated them. And so the Edomians, and they were treated that way because they were um, not Israelites. And and so the, 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 the Edomians were not friends of Israel. When Rome took over, the flattery and the general competence of the Herodian line under a man named Antipas allowed them to maintain power throughout the Roman occupation and to well work themselves into the whole system of Roman occupation. They had been in political power in the region for several generations now, spanning over nearly actually about 100 years. And there was a political sect in Israel who supported this familial line of kings, and they were called the Herodians. Now, this would not be particularly consistent with the aims of the Pharisees, if you know anything about the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a religious movement. However, uh, they arose out of a political movement, which would have been the Revolt of the Maccabees. And it was in the time of the Revolt of the Maccabees that they arose as the answer to any sort of um, compromise or liberalization of the Mosaic law. And because Rome was an occupying power, and because Herod was not even a Jew but an Edomite, this means that Herod was considered an attempted usurper to the throne, uh, along with Rome's power. And so the Pharisees, being a purist sect a purest nationalist religious sect in Israel would have absolutely nothing in common with a Herodian Roman political sect. But here's the thing. The Pharisees saw in Jesus a threat to their religious power because he came with authority and sound doctrine backed by signs and wonders. And the Herodians saw Jesus as a threat to Herod's political power because Jesus came as a king offering a kingdom. And of course, the previous Herod had attempted to kill Jesus in his day. That would be the story that we'll be studying inevitably as we get a little bit closer to Christmas. So these two groups who hated each other found in Jesus a common enemy. And as the old adage goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So, two groups both of which were threatened by the authority of Jesus Christ, would now conspire to see him destroyed one way or the other. And we leave our text there for today. But I'd like us to learn some lessons as we close this evening, and we'll leave with the Herodians and the Pharisees conspiring together how they might destroy Jesus. Four points, however, as we, as we try to draw application out of what we've learned this evening. Point number one Grace has made Christians free from the letter of the law. Now, I'm not going to spend excessive time on any of these points this evening. I can and indeed have preached an entire series, in fact, on the statement which I just made in my first point. And though it is, in a way, opening a can of worms to set down such a point, which is actually quite controversial in Christian circles today without fully defending it, it is important to state this fact in conjunction with our next point because of the topic at hand, namely that would be the Sabbath day. The New Testament makes it clear that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but he did also come to fulfill the law and that those who are under this grace that is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ do not rest under the letter of the law under its commands and its dictates, That does not mean that the law itself is wicked or bad or wrong or evil or anything of the sort. Paul makes this very clear in Romans. Paul makes this very clear in Galatians. And yet he also says in Galatians chapter 3 that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And that once we are brought to Christ, we are no longer under the the need for, for governors and for tutors. But that we have stepped into an inheritance outside of that schoolmaster and under He who is Christ. Those who are under grace do not rest under the law's commands, under its dictates. The Sabbath is one of the things which is explicitly mentioned in the New Testament as being fulfilled, as something which the Christian is freed from through Christ's fulfillment of the law. Now, Paul also will say, and we'll see this in a moment, that he calls the Sabbath and these other laws a shadow of things to come, meaning that they existed in a time and in a place to reflect something about A prophetic future, but not about the grace-filled presence. Hebrews 4 telling us that the believer lives in the Sabbath every moment that he is in fellowship with his Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul will say in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, And you, being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. And so we see Paul explicitly state that these conditions, these conditions which are rooted in the do's and the don'ts of the Old Testament about what to eat, what not to eat, what to drink, what not to drink, what holidays to keep, what new moons to observe, what Sabbaths to observe. Paul says, let no man judge you in those things. Verse 20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to? to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, but not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Paul specifically tells the readers that the handwriting of ordinances which had been against man through their inability to live up to the righteousness which was in the law, was blotted out by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, having been nailed to his cross. So that when Jesus said, it is finished, it was also fulfilled. That these ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, perish with the using. They are external ordinances that have no spiritual bearing because those things are fulfilled in Christ. Not that one does... That the, that not that these things don't have any show of wisdom. Paul says, indeed, there is a real show of wisdom in the ability to constrain one's will. There is a real show of wisdom in the ability to reflect humility, and to, re, to, reflect the, to, to even neglect the body, to have the self-control by which to show that you can bring your body under control. So these ordinances reflect the capacity and desire in a man to subjugate his will and his impulses to something greater and higher, and that does have value, just not intrinsically redemptive value, only that they reflect the commands and the doctrines of men rather than God. And this is actually the essence of our second point this evening. Point number two, grace does not free Christians from the design of God for men. The counterpoint to our understanding of our liberty in Christ from the letter of the law is that this does not mean that God has changed his design and wisdom. That though God no longer holds over the head of any believer a Sabbath day, that the Sabbath day is not a command for the New Testament Christian does not mean that God has not designed into mankind the need to rest. And that the man who pushes himself seven days a week without taking a rest is not a man who is explicitly sinning against an ordinance of God, but he is a man who is sinning against his body. He's pushing his body beyond God's design. And in the same way, the Bible commands no meats or drinks or holidays as uh, an explicit command for Christians. And yet not all meat and drink is good for the body. Humans benefit from the intrinsic community, camaraderie, and the joy that holidays bring. The fact that we don't have to do them in a compulsory way does not mean that we should not recognize their principles and reflect them in our lives. It simply means that those are not the conditions by which we judge whether or not we are right or not right with God. To reject these things is not sin, but it is to lose something that might otherwise have value in the design of God, from which I am certainly not freed, the design of God that being, simply because I've been redeemed from the letter of the law. And I would do well to understand the nature of humanity as God has made it. And so align myself with those elements of God's design, not because I must under the letter before God, but because the things that are reflected in the law do reflect an application of God's design and so have intrinsic value, if not necessarily in our lives, certainly in our society. Point number three. Guard yourselves from assuming burdens where God desires blessings. Blessings. As we live this life, we want to guard ourselves against the tendency to assume burdens where God desires blessings. There are many things that, whether we think of it or not, Christians tend to do by way of blessing. Meeting together on a Sunday. Many people in the world, they say, I have to go to church. But as was testified already in our prayer time this evening, how many people around the world... Long for the opportunity to wake up on a Sunday and simply say, You know, I'm going to go to a public place of worship and worship my God freely without persecution or fear. Meeting together midweek to rejuvenate our hearts one with another halfway through the week. Now, we do this because we see the deep and abiding value of the assembly. We do it because we see in it the blessing. We know it to be a blessing. But that structure can at times become a burden too, can't it? For one reason or another. Maybe it's bad weather, illness, a unique need. There are times when what would and should otherwise be a positive step of love and obedience to God becomes little more than a burden. And I should not feel guilty when I must lay down what is otherwise something positive because for some temporary reason this has become a burden rather than a blessing. Now let me be clear about what this does and does not mean as I say it. There are times when every act of piety and godliness becomes a burden because godliness requires selflessness. I'm not saying that when something that God asks you to do becomes a burden, you should just lay it down. <laughs> That's not, the, that's not the intent today. Love is difficult many times. And if I say, well, God, loving that person's finally become a burden and you don't want it to be a burden. You want it to be a blessing. So I'm just going to lay down that love. Goodbye, person. That's not what we're saying today. The ministry is a burden. No pastor would be in ministry if he was just going to lay down every burden. Burdens are an expected part of the Christian walk burdens are always going to come and if we simply bow out of all of our duties and responsibilities to others on those days then we will find ourselves ineffective for Christ but what we talk about today are those things established in our lives to be blessings but by and by the way the the very way they are being exercised in a unique circumstance it becomes a burden where it would, should, otherwise be a blessing. We all know the day of hard ministry will be a burden. We bear that burden in order that we may come to the other side with joy, that it may accomplish the purpose that that burden is intended. But if there is no other side, if the structure of ministry only yields only to a spiritual burden if there is no joy, if there is no rest, if there is no accomplishment, if there is no purpose, if the purpose is the burden itself, that, 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 that doesn't make biblical sense. The burden is not the purpose. The burden is what we carry along the way to the purpose. And if the, if the purpose itself is the burden, if it's negative 1,000 degrees and it's snowed 10 feet, And I call all of my church folks and I say, the doors of the church are going to be open and you had better be here. The purpose of me doing that on that day is not that we can come here and actually have a blessed day of worship. The purpose is that we can show ourselves how pious we are by actually making it to church. The purpose has become the burden. That's a day where I need to call and say, everybody stay home. I don't want anyone dying trying to get to church today. You see the difference? And so it is with all things in the Christian life. There will be hard days which accompany a calling which is otherwise one of liberty and of joy. But if there is no liberty and joy at all, then consider the system itself and see why it is that you have seen fit to yoke yourself to a burden that does not give way to spiritual blessing, to spiritual liberty, to joy. Where God would otherwise desire a blessing. And this applies to church. This applies to our standards of living. This applies to our interactions with others. If they only represent in our lives a burden, if we are carrying a burden for a burden's sake, there is something out of order in that and ought to be explored. Is there a way that this got confused? Is there a way that that we took something that was right and good and was intended to be right and good, but somehow got it confused or, or misordered? And do we just need to realign it? Do we just need to refocus it? Do we just need to get it back to what it was intended to be so that it's not just a burden for burden's sake, but it's something real? The solution, if church is a burden for you, is not to just stop going to church. The solution is to figure out why church is only a burden and then to fix that. Is it because of the church that you're going to? Is it because of the manner that you have approached church? Is it because of the heart with which you're doing it? Is it because there's rebellion that needs to be repented of? What is it that makes church only a burden? And let's get that fixed because it's not supposed to be that way, right? So guard yourself, Christian, from assuming burdens where God desires blessings. And then fourth and finally this evening. Guard yourself from losing the greater law on the basis of the lesser. Guard yourself from becoming so rich in an area of virtue, an area of positive good and worth in our lives, that when a higher law, a greater law, demands our loyalty, we actually yield the higher law to that which is lesser. As Christians, we hold standards of worship, standards of conduct, standards of speech, standards of interaction. We do so in honor to our Lord and as a desire to protect ourselves, our loved ones, and to foster an environment of worship, an environment in the home that is virtuous, that is right before God and man. And we point to the principles of God's word to uphold these things in our lives which are right and which are good. But there comes a time where our laws of good will come up against some higher law where our law of good comes up against the law to do good to another. And the standard mode of operation, the standard way that I would do things, the standard uh, places I would go, the standard things that I would, I, I would uh, guard in my life for the sake of testimony, for the sake of, 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 of charity, for the sake of simplicity, for the sake of, of separation, whatever it might be, there comes a time when that will come up against other laws. The law to love a brother. The law to do good to another. The law to meet the need of another. The call to show mercy or grace or long-suffering. I was talking to a brother the other day about, um, I believe it's a verse in Proverbs. I, I don't even know what it is. It just came to mind. But the Proverbs tell us that it's the glory of a man to pass over a transgression. Now, as a general rule, that's not a good thing to just live by, right? Pass over every transgression. But there's a time where it's the right thing to do. Where the law, a greater law calls you to something other than what you would normally operate by, even in wisdom. And to accomplish this purpose, you will be asked on that day to subordinate the laws of good by which you operate, you will be required to go, a pla- go to a place or do a thing or interact with a person, things which you would otherwise avoid and following the laws of good which you've erected in your life for your wellness and your protection. And on that day, you'll need to follow a higher law to subjugate the good to the more needful. And in these last two points, I have remained somewhat general in my exhortations, and that's specifically because I fear many or any direct examples I give will serve to confuse rather than to explain or clarify. So to a degree, what I'm doing as I'm giving these points somewhat generally is I'm trusting the Holy Spirit in this. That if the Spirit of God, as I say these things, is placing his thumb on something in your life and says, examine this thing, that you listen to that and that you examine it in turn. But you might be facing these decisions where you live by good laws which make for your wellness and the wellness of your family and of your church. But then there comes a day when Not just for the sake of breaching anything, not out of contempt for what you have lived by or certainly the God that has uh, burdened you to live by them, but there comes a day when to do something else that Christ has called you unto. Again, to do good for another, to show Christ to another, to show love, to accomplish the commands, which are higher commands to truly love your God and to love your brother and to love your neighbor, you'll be asked to come outside of those good laws for a moment of time, not in contempt of those things that you are doing, not uh, in order that you might cast off those things that you have been doing that have been there for your protection or for your safety or for your wellness, out of wisdom or out of, uh, out of that which is, is best, but rather to do so in order that you might com- accomplish something higher. And on that day, Don't allow yourself to lose the greater law on the basis of the lesser. Don't allow yourself to be the person who would pass up healing the man with the withered hand for the sake of a Sabbath ordinance. Who would pass up feeding a man who who he and his men need food for the sake of a ceremonial showbread. Don't allow your own fears or your apathy or your comfort to get in the way of doing what is truly right on that day. Don't allow a man's hand, as I said, to remain withered so that you can please the perceptions of those who believe worshiping God is a system rather than a spirit. And as we do these things, we position ourselves to be men and women who embody the desire of our Savior, really who embody the example of our Savior, that they who worship God Worship Him in spirit and in truth. And in doing so, we also live out the authority of our Savior, who is Lord of the Sabbath, who commands our love and obedience, and who has uh, fulfilled in Himself all of the righteousness that the law requires. And for we who are complete in Him, we are exactly that, complete in Him.